episode 86, the new patient advocacy supergroup you should know about. Today, I speak with Mary Richards from Partners for Better Care. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. A group of major patient advocacy groups have joined forces to form Partners for Better Care Coalition. Their mission is to seek, from the patient's point of view, fair, affordable, and equitable healthcare reform. Today, I speak with Mary Richards, who is the CEO of Partners for Better Care, about what the group is up to and their broad plans to help transform the system into one that is much friendlier and understandable to the patient. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Mary. Thank you so much, Stacey. I'm so happy to be here. Your press team sent me a press release in December, and this is the headline. New Patient Advocacy Coalition leads the next generation of health reform. And it was in all caps. So what's the skinny there? Partners for Better Care is a nonpartisan coalition. We have 10 major disease advocacy groups that are in our membership. Our membership represents about 55 million people living with chronic conditions and disabilities. And we've gathered together as a coalition to look at some of these issues around affordable, accessible, transparent, and high-quality health care. To summarize, what you have done is band together disparate patient advocacy groups into one supergroup, if you will. <laughs> I love the idea of us being some sort of rock band. Yes, exactly. We are looking at all these individual organizations from AIDS United to United Cerebral Palsy, all been looking at these issues around you know, network adequacy, accessibility, affordability, transparency, discrimination, other issues. They've all been looking at these through the lens of their communities for many years now. I think that from a patient advocacy organization perspective, there is much that individual organizations can do and have done. I think there's been an interest in understanding what patient-centered care truly means. And our goal is to be able to articulate that across different types of conditions and diseases so that all parts of the healthcare field are able to really rely on the way in which patients need some improvements and, and some tweaks to the healthcare system so that it works for everyone. You're banding together so that there's a stronger voice of the patient. That's right. So we are, are looking at ways in which we can pull together all of these different experiences, certainly the folks that are represented by the Magic Foundation, one of our members, which is folks who are living with growth disorders, uh, may be a different set of issues than the folks at the National Multiple Sclerosis Society have or the American Liver Foundation. But each and every one of those organizations represent people who are a part of the system and sometimes are a stressor on the system. And how is it that we can look at where the stresses exist and be a rational, helpful, articulate, and expert organization to illuminate those areas where there are currently challenges and where solutions may be created. 
you want to be the go-to place. So, so if I'm a health system or I work for an insurance company, that if I really want to understand what the patient perspective is, you want to be the first line available in order to sit at the table and make sure that the concerns of the patient are heard and are articulated and are readily available. That's exactly right. Okay, so let me just interject because I heard something very interesting the other day. I was at a seminar and someone used the term patient-centered care. Someone else broke in and said, you know, if you call it patient-centered care, then it's really not. And of course, everyone's eyebrows went up. What the point was is that who considers themselves a patient? I mean, like, (laughs) do you consider yourself a patient? I mean, seriously, maybe you did at the moment that you're an inpatient in a hospital. So maybe I'm a patient the 1% of the time that I am actually in a provider's office. But the second I open that door and walk out on the street, I am no longer a patient. And many of the people living with chronic conditions are on the street far more often than they are in a doctor's office. I think it's a fantastic point. My background is I worked on the Hill in the late 90s and early 2000s, but I've been in patient advocacy for more than 10 years now. One of the interesting points that many patient advocacy organizations will often make is that patients or being a patient is a moment in time. Exactly to your point, I I wonder if the person who was speaking came out of patient advocacy. Uh, You are a patient when you're in a physician's office and patients are, that's a relationship with a physician. We really do work with patient advocacy organizations and their members are advocates in many cases. That's the way that they articulate that perspective rather than patients. For this purpose, however, we've used the vernacular, right? So we're looking at a patient charter, which is really a roadmap for the ways in which we believe issues need to be looked at and seen, the rights of patients, very similar to the 1970s Patients' Bill of Rights that hangs in hospitals and physicians' offices, rather than, I know there have been other Patients' Bill of Rights, which is why we avoided that term. But as we use the term patients, what we really truly mean are folks who happen to be experts in the system folks who, you're right, are maybe only in a physician's office a few times a year, but are dealing with chronic conditions and are having to navigate the system, whether it's hospitalizations or specialist offices, general practitioner offices, medications, rehabilitative therapies, and other things. And so I would agree with you, patient-centered care is often used in many, many ways. We also believe that as much as The patient experience may not be more than a few hours a year in some cases. For many folks with chronic conditions, when you wake up in the morning and need to take a a few prescription medications, if you have to take a few trips a, a month to see rehabilitative therapist of some type, those are also experiences where you are taking care of your health in a way that on a broad basis is is a patient experience. And those are the things that we're trying to capture. I looked over the charter for the charter, if you will. As you had mentioned, Partners for Better Care members are planning to focus on creating a charter. And that charter covers six areas, which we can get to in a moment. But the first one really interested me, the focus on predictable, manageable out-of-pocket costs with limited cost shifting. And the reason that this interested me is because there's been a lot of attention focused on the Cadillac tax which is Mm -hmm. almost coming at this from the exact opposite perspective. In other words, what the Cadillac tax is, the employer, if an employer pays premiums for an employee that are over a certain dollar amount 
and you know, let's not forget that higher premiums tend to mean lower out-of-pocket costs, then the employer is subject to this Cadillac tax. There's a, a definite force which is pressing against employers from a systemic standpoint to cost shift to patients. And now what your groups, the first line item in your charter is to cost shift it back. <laughs> How are we? Talk about that. One of the things that I think is also interesting about this big question of cost is that Kaiser New York Times survey that just recently came out in January that showed that one in five working age insured Americans reported problems paying medical bills in the last year. And that same, the Kaiser Health tracking poll found that the personal cost of health care ranks third for voters in terms of their, their vote for president this year. That is an issue that ranks third behind terrorism and the economy as an extremely important issue. So cost, whether it's through the lens of that Cadillac tax or from a voter issue or in terms of the primary issues that working class and working age Americans are reporting, it is a tricky issue, right? This is a fundamentally both large and tricky issue. This is where the rubber hits the road in the healthcare system. And as we talk to both middle-class Americans and some of the survey work that we've done, as well as people with chronic conditions, those systemic efforts to contain costs, those issues are ones that we want to participate in and discuss in terms of both the value of care and treatment and being able to deliver quality care at the best possible outcomes with a reasonable cost associated with them. And that any new payment delivery models that are being considered right now, especially as even Medicare is moving away from some fee-for-service into some different payment methodologies, we want to make sure that we are participating in those discussions. I don't think that if the answer was crystal clear, I think that we'd already be engaged in working through those solutions. I think we're still struggling to develop them, but certainly... We're hearing more and more that the rate of out-of-pocket costs is increasing in an unsustainable way. We want to be able to change that. If out-of-pocket costs are so misunderstood in cases or so expensive to the insured, they avoid care. And that's not the goal of anyone in the, in the system, to avoid necessary care. Looking up that Kaiser study that you just referenced, which, as I'm reading on your site, the poll finds six in 10 voters consider the cost of healthcare, health insurance, and prescription drugs are very important in determining their vote. Let me introduce this element because this shocked me. Kentucky. So Kentucky has, as we, some of us, many of us probably listening to this podcast are aware, has a terrible drug overdose, opioid addiction issue. And Medicaid expansion helped innumerable Kentuckians deal with not only their addiction issues, but also cardiovascular concerns. I listened to a report where they were interviewing people who had received care through that new Medicaid expansion. And I'm not even talking about Kentucky Connect. That's a whole separate issue. I'm, I'm talking about the Medicaid expansion. So they interviewed a number of patients who had, for the first time in their lives, received, I'm not even going to say adequate health care, almost any health care. And they were practically in tears as they discussed how much they appreciated that care. Then the next question was, who'd you vote for? And you know who they voted for? Matt Bevan, who ran on a platform of dismantling the Medicaid expansion. 
And when asked why, I mean, this would seem to be in direct opposition to their interests. I mean, some of them said they always vote on the party line. Other ones kind of didn't connect the dots between the taker person that Matt Bevan was standing on his podium articulating were the beneficiaries of this Medicaid expansion. I mean, he was (laughs) classifying them in in the most horrible light. And these people didn't quite realize that they were the person being discussed and voted for him anyway. So I read that Kaiser study and I've said, of course, you know, maybe if you ask people this question, I just wonder how much that very theoretical study would translate into reality given a case study like Kentucky. Well, I think voter behavior is something that certainly there are folks who are expert in. I am an interested observer in that way and and would not classify myself as an expert. But I I think there are ways in which we can connect. Some of this language in healthcare is tremendously opaque to people who are healthcare users. So when we talk about Medicaid beneficiaries or back during Part D, and we talked about dually eligible individuals, when you asked a person who was eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid if they knew who a dual eligible was, They had no idea that that was them. So I think there's a part of this that is taking away some of the language that we have to use when we're a part of a healthcare system, when we are able to communicate with one another as industry experts. We use these terms and we understand them. If you are a very busy person who's working one or two jobs, 40 plus hours a week and raising a family and trying to figure out how to pay your bills you might not actually know the artful language of our industry. So how is it that we talk to regular Americans who are busy people, very smart, very interested, and and not going to learn a new glossary? And I think that the health plans have been trying to figure this out. I know that we spent quite a lot of time back when Part D was being implemented, trying to figure out ways that we could actually communicate effectively with the folks who needed to have information delivered to them. Sometimes when we think about Things like selecting plans on the exchange right now, which is such a big deal. We know that there are ambitious goals there. We know that the health plans are trying to design plans that meet the requirements of the Affordable Care Act and also connect with the patient needs. We know that those things are occurring. The question is whether or not when someone goes on the exchange to evaluate one plan versus another, can they actually navigate that and and line up what the out-of-pocket cost might be expected with? their experience of healthcare in the previous year or two? Do folks understand what what we required of them past co-insurance and premiums, making sure that deductibles and other cost-sharing mechanisms are well understood? So whether it's a voter behavior question or whether it's understanding the plans that you're signing up for, I think we have the same challenge. And that challenge has to be met by all of us. So membership of Partners for Better Care has spent a lot of time figuring out ways to communicate with their own populations and communities. And so we're hopeful that we can take that information and share it with industry stakeholders and that we also get to a place where we can bridge those gaps. I don't think that it's a matter of not knowing your own needs. I think it's a matter of not understanding that when that politician or or when that plan is expressing that they may not be working in your best interest to be able to understand whether that that's the case. That was probably proven on the other side of that Kentucky equation with Kentucky Connect because that candidate had run on a platform of dismantling Obamacare. And many people didn't understand that Kentucky Connect was actually funded in part by the Affordable Care Act. So it does seem to be a 
significant delta in the jargon of the industry and what is understandable to an average patient. I mean, understandably, you know, my day job is just a sea of acronyms um, (laughs) and weird ways that just in the industry, it has evolved to call things. So what would seem like a a totally natural and understandable sort of statement in our day jobs is, is completely arcane when we speak to patients. So here's the question then. If I'm a provider or an insurance company, what advice do you have for me? I mean, how do I make sure that when I am talking about something with a patient, because I might not know what I don't know, how do I ensure that patients are understanding the really important piece of what I'm trying to do here? So Partners for Better Care is hoping that we can be a service and a part of helping to unpack that experience for payers and providers. We know that this is a huge undertaking. Partners for Better Care is looking at a huge swath of issues and representing patient advocacy organizations and their members. And one of the things that we can do is to reach out to other key players in the health system this year, including insurers and hospital systems, providers, and others, to share with them the experience of the 55 million Americans that are represented by our our member organizations. We are going to be doing a number of surveys over the years, and we're making sure that we are that expert source for industry stakeholders as well as government and others. We'd invite other stakeholders to the table with us. We're a membership organization of patient advocacy organizations that lead our coalition, but we are creating a a membership for industry folks to participate in Partners for Better Care. If I'm a provider or an insurance company, what's your advice? What, What do I do? I mean, it was basically the summary of what you just said to call up patients for better care and run my communications by them or or I, I'm not what's what's the uh, what's the down low here I certainly don't expect for partners for better care to be part of any insurance company's approval process for their communications what we do hope that we can do there are a lot of folks that are looking at this issue right now including the organizations that communicate most regularly with these communities and those folks are our membership organizations so I don't have a package right now where I can hand off a glossary of terms to payers and others who want to communicate effectively with the folks we represent. But what I am saying is that over time, when we can understand the needs of industry stakeholder members and others, there may be ways for us to start answering some of those questions together. I think there are a lot of issues right now that we're trying to work on, but we also see that as we want for the patient to be at the table as these big conversations around payment reform are occurring, we also know that we can be a resource as folks are trying to get it right. What do you think about the whole trend of thinking about a patient as a consumer will play into this? One of the main reasons why ostensibly this cost shifting is occurring to the patient is in order to encourage through financial incentives, the patients to really think about the cost of the services that they're receiving and evaluate them as a consumer would evaluate. And also nothing for nothing, but vote with their feet. (laughs) How does that augment or not the mission of Partners for Better Care? I think there are a number of complexities related to increased transparency of cost and value There's stuff from data issues to IT issues that are are relevant here. 
one of the things that we see is that even when we're attempting transparency, it's not always clear what the costs will be. What we hear from folks in our membership is that understanding what the out-of-pocket costs related to a course of treatment or an episode of care, that it is still tremendously opaque. And when in doubt, folks will often pull back from seeking necessary care rather than having unexpected billing. And we don't want to see that. We know that creates a great deal more complications in the long run. We know that patients today don't have access to all the information that they need to know about the plans, but also what a hospitalization might cost. And some of those things are not avoidable. And some of those episodes of care may convert into crisis care when they're not handled at the right time. So I think there are a number of questions that our books have. There are some models out there around physicians' offices being able to share with the patient at the time that a prescription is being written, what they think the cost of filling that prescription will be. Pharmacists are increasingly involved in that. We also know that understanding the plan that the person, that the patient is on is also helpful to them and finding out ways of anticipating. Many folks with chronic conditions need to receive the same type of care on a repetitive basis during the year and being able to work with your plan in advance of signing up for it to understand what the total out-of-pocket costs would look like for that visit to the neurologist that may be accompanied with an updated prescription, what that might look like in terms of costs in advance of receiving that care. I know that a lot of the plans are working through those things with patients as they're selecting plans, especially in the exchange. Coincidentally, last week I spoke with a gentleman named A.J. Loyacano who works at a company called Truveris. And the mission of Truveris is to enable physicians and patients, providers and patients, right at the point of prescribing. So in other words, doctor mm. sitting there write, writes a, a prescription for a pharmaceutical product. Patient or provider really can call up on their smartphone how much that prescription is going to cost the patient. So before they march into the pharmacy, figure out that the prescription is going to cost them $400 and throw their hands up and walk out with nothing, that this important facet is understood so that it can be talked out with the provider in advance. And of course, there are a number of other technology companies that are involved in pricing transparency, as well as just trying to quantify the value of care. How do you see Partners for Better Care working with those technology players, if at all? Or is that something that you're going to leave to the advocacy groups kind of downstream? I think we're all really fascinated by any type of technology that can provide a better experience for people who are stakeholders in the system, and patients certainly are. If you've ever met, uh, there are a lot of folks living with Parkinson's disease, for example, who have assistive technology to help remind them about when medications should be taken and that sort of thing. But we know, um, and the Alzheimer's Association has a p- program with tech companies looking at ways to, to better utilize technology and especially some home assistive technologies to improve patient experience. I think all of our member organizations are certainly interested in those things. We're interested in interacting with those organizations When they're looking at how to include the patient experience in their technologies, we'd be happy to sit down with folks as folks want to. And then we will expect that we're going to start articulating the patient experience and the things that might be helpful and necessary and put those things out in terms of uh, on our website and other ways for folks to be able to connect the needs of the organizations that we represent. One of the challenges that I see many of these technologies happening or even just 
moving, transforming the way care is delivered in general is that the time frame is extended. It's changing the way that a healthcare organization delivers care, even thinks about things. It's like turning an ocean liner. It really is. How do you envision Partners for Better Care assisting maybe these technology companies who are attempting to disrupt care delivery or helping some of these advocacy groups who are in a different way trying to do the same thing? What do you think the best way is to try to accelerate those changes? I think you're right about the ocean liner analogy, and we certainly see that. I would also say there are some changes that are possible that can be transformative for a patient experience in a very short time frame. Ask any person living with type 2 diabetes that's gone from struggling on their own to having some management tools available to them. I know there are a number of providers out there who, who really were leading the way on this. I think Intermountain Healthcare in particular and a bunch of others. And we see now that there are some tools that can be high tech or low tech that have a profound experience at lowering costs and improving the quality and value of care being delivered to patients. I think as we look at the challenges that still exist, being able to find those critical moments where some intervention, technology, or otherwise is possible to transform patient experience is part of what we're about at Partners for Better Care. You're going to have some sort of Partners for Better Care seal of approval that you can stamp on (laughs) technologies that um, Um, meet your criteria? There are some member organizations that do that and some that don't. I don't have any current plans to do that now. Certainly, we want to just be um, a resource and be helpful to those who are trying to transform the patient experience. I'm not sure I anticipate us having a better housekeeping (laughs) seal of approval anytime soon. If someone who is listening is interested in learning more about Partners for Better Care, where would you direct them, Mary? Please come to our website. It's not tricky at all. It's partnersforbettercare.org. We're a not-for-profit organization, so we're in .org. Come check us out on the web. Come also check us out on Twitter and Facebook, which is linked to from our website. It was a pleasure to speak with you today, Mary. Thank you so much, Stacey, and thank you to your listeners. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of All of the shows that we have published thus far, there are over 50 at this point with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.